Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is recorded at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, Pod Sequentialism is also brought to you by the Pop Sequentialism Traveling Exhibition of Original Comic Book Art, the publication catalog, and the website. And of course, uh, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where I am also the director, and Gallery 30 South in Pasadena, California which is more of a um, sort of highbrow endeavor that I own with my wife. And, um, and here we are. It's been a while. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be back after a, an elongated vacation or a series of circumstances um, with um, vacation and leaving town and different vacations all happen at the same time. But we are back in time for about the time when the first episodes actually aired. So we're, we're about two years in and rapidly approaching the 100th episode. And as we get closer, the instinct in just my mind process and, and how I think is to, is to get back in touch with people that I've known for a really, really long time as we get closer and closer to this great milestone. And someone that I've always talked to about being on the show, probably for over a year now, is uh, someone I've known for a very, very long time, who's also from Massachusetts, although we didn't meet in Massachusetts. Yep. And it is Mr. Tom Frank. Thank you. It's great to be here, finally. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a long time coming. Yes. Uh, it, it does seem odd. Yeah. It's taken this long. And uh, I'm just glad that we reconnected. We, um, yeah. It was like two months ago or a month ago. Yeah. Uh, I went to Life Drawing at your gallery. Yep, at Gallery Pasadena. 30 South. 30 yeah. South. Yeah. Uh, uh, gallery Girls puts that on the 15th of every month. And mm-hmm. I wanted to go. And uh, it worked out. And you were, I was there for like... You know, drawing for like 20 minutes and you go, oh, my God, Tom Frank, you're here finally. So, um, you know, and then we after it was over and everyone left, we talked for like two hours. Yeah. 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 It was just great catching up. And it's just like, you know, shame on us. Yeah. For for, you know, losing touch. So So now we got to give some background on that catch up because um, no one else knows this. So um, Tom Frank was part of my first trip to Japan. You were the person who spearheaded that trip. You were the person who did most of the research. Most of the people that were there were there for collecting toys. And I was just there because I thought it would be fun to go to Japan and kind of Mm -hmm. check in with a couple of um, acting agencies at the time because I was still doing commercials. Right. And you were were definitely sort of ahead of the curve. Yeah. I remember on that trip, you brought a bunch of artist proofs. By Coop. By Coop. Yeah. And they did, were met with like uh, lack of understanding. Yep. You know, you, you couldn't get rid of them. Yeah. The you know? Kozik ones that I brought were purchased and for quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. And then someone bought like a pair of jeans and an old leather jacket that I had yeah. that I had used to just wrap stuff to keep it from shaking around in this crazy Navy bag. I think that these tubes, these FedEx tubes with all the Coop stuff were in. How I let Coop talk me into doing this, I know I have no idea. But, but it Coop was, went to Japan. And shortly afterwards, a and year like, and a half yeah, later, yeah, and and couldn't and came back with nothing. You know, yeah. he was at a convention and was just mobbed. Yeah, so. they I had sort of planted the seeds for everybody to know who he was, and then when he showed up, they were mm-hmm. like, "Oh yeah, some guy was bringing these around a while ago. We didn't know who you were." Yeah, and did I get any thanks? No, but <laughs> um, but it was an interesting experience to have you know to be bringing to be cu- lugging around all of these. Uh, tubes of posters in January mm-hmm. in the snow right. in Tokyo, and we visited, to my knowledge, every toy store in the greater right. Tokyo area. Well, yeah, and that was not easy. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's sort of set the stage a little bit. Yeah. Um, this is 
this was January 96. Yeah. And so the internet is around, but it's still very young. It's not this common thing. You know, eBay wasn't eBay what it is now. So, and, and, you know, nostalgia sort of strikes hardest um, after people get out of college Mm -hmm. and before they have families. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, you're dealing with nostalgia for the 70s, pretty much. So that's it's sort of a global phenomenon. Yep. It's not a you know American thing or a Japanese thing. So when you know, so in the '90s, there's this big surge of nostalgia for Japanese uh, anime from the '70s. And, and of course, that stuff hit America a little bit later than it hit in Japan. Yeah, a few years. You know, so we're in a way following the Japanese nostalgia for Japanese right. stuff. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, it was very mysterious then. Yeah. You know, you look at the internet and how much transparency there is and how, you know, the the, the history. Yeah. You know, we had the Shogun Warriors. We had Force 5, which yep. was broadcast. And in, in Boston, you know, where we're yep. from, Massachusetts, yep. and, and Mr. Big Toyland and Waltham. Waltham, yeah. And, yep. and uh, Outer Limits. <laughs> so we, you know, would sort of know about this stuff, but mm-hmm. we, we, we had this feeling that it was a small subset of mm-hmm. what was actually produced in Japan, yep. all of these other robot shows. So there was just tons of, of uh, Japanese toys and anime that we were sort of doing scholarship on yeah. and figuring out. You know, it was like archaeology. Oh, look, what this, is this version called? of this toy. Yeah. And we didn't speak Japanese, and none of us were reading Japanese. You had started to uh, figure out some stuff. Yeah, I took a year in college in yeah. Japan, and I did not do well. You yeah. know, I, I, and I got sidetracked in some other stuff. Now, I have to say this before we move forward, because you mentioned Shogun Warriors, and you were, at the time that we went to Japan, to my knowledge, one of the leading authorities on Jumbo yeah. Machinders, yeah. definitely in America, mm-hmm. and with in the top five worldwide, probably. It's tricky. I mean, you know, again, access to information was so uh, spotty at yeah. that point. You know, I learned a lot from different people. Yeah. Um, there were these guys here in L.A., mm-hmm. these uh, Japanese brothers, Ryle were their, was their last name, and they had a band, mm-hmm. and they, you know, would come into Meltdown. I worked at Meltdown in, like, ninety. Four, yeah, and, you know when it first opened. So I'd meet all these different people, and Gaston would introduce us. And there, there were definitely people who knew who knew more than me about some stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was like a sponge in, in putting that together. I had a, a website uh, after our first trip to Japan called Cool Japanese Toys, mm-hmm. which I ran for a while. And that sort of you know I get emails all the time telling me stuff that I didn't know. When was but, the giant robot issue? The one that I made. Yeah, yeah, I made a garage toy of Johnny Sacco's giant robot. That was well before we went to Japan. Yeah. That was 92, yeah. 93. Because you were sort of known for that, you know, yeah. among toy collectors. Right. Yeah. That was a lot of fun, you know, sculpting in my garage and, and learning slush casting. And, and as we plastic. get further on this, this is going to get more incredible because you are much better known for other things at this point in time. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, I'm, get, not, I'm not going to blow the lead. It, it's good to, you know, go over our history together. And, yeah. You know, we had a lot of stuff to catch up on. Um, so I had sold a screenplay mm-hmm. to Miramax and, uh, in, so, so that would have been 95. Is that wall to wall? No, that was, it was prom war. Prom war. That's right. That's yes. right. And you know, it was, it never got made. But I might still have that script in yeah. my closet actually. I, you know, I'm very proud of it. You yeah. know, the idea was, you know, a uh, Trojan war set in high school and, um, you know, treating the prom like 
the way that chocolate is treated in Willy Wonka, where everyone cares about it, yeah. to, to like, or, or uh, strictly ballroom is yeah. another uh, uh, tonal example that we would use. Mm-hmm. And like, you wouldn't see the girl who is sort of the Helen of Troy. We called her Helen Ashcroft. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden she dumps her college boyfriend and is available to go to the prom at yeah. this place where the prom is the most important thing. And like all bets are off. Everyone cancels their dates to try and go out with, with <laughs> Helen. And it like, the, the, she's the golden the ticket. Effect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's the golden ticket. And it was, it was a lot of fun and I liked it. And, um, woods entertainment, uh, brought it to Miramax and Miramax got it. And, you know, Woods Entertainment says, yeah, you know, we got the youth market cornered. We've got this movie called Scary Movie yeah. and we've got Prom War and Scary Movie obviously became Scream. And yeah. But like those two projects were talked about in the same breath yeah. uh, often. And, you know, it's just that's the way the cookie crumbles. You can't, yeah. uh, you, know, you, you know, a lot of projects don't happen and this right. was one of them. And, uh, you know, you got to move on. Right, right. So from that point, and, and you were also, you were doing, you starting to do, I think you had done stand-up before, but then you, you started kind of getting out a little bit more often, and I saw your stand-up, I think you, I saw you twice in, in that era, like after you got back from Japan, and as deals mm-hmm. were starting to fall into place for Prom War, and you had other screenplays you were working on, because right. of course they tell you, it's like, oh, well, we don't want to just try and sell one screenplay, yeah. getting traction on this, but you need to have two more ready to go. You know, type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the, the sort of the spec screenplay market mm-hmm. was very different in the 90s than it is now. Oh, everything was getting options left and right. Right. You know, they wanted original material. Yeah. And they just don't want that now. Yeah. You know, it's just like everything is you know, Marvel and 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 uh, Star Wars. And uh, I mean, you look at the Oscars for the best original screenplay and the pickings are always slim year after year because they're just, you know, people don't want to take a risk on original stuff. And again, that's show business. That's the way that it works. But like after that, I had another screenplay that got optioned um, by John Woo's company Mm -hmm. um, and they brought it to New market. So that's Terrence Chang and Terrence Chang. Yeah, yeah he he was really uh, championing championing. I love that office. That was right over on Pico, mm-hmm. you know, next to the um the Fox lot, the Sony lot. The, yeah, they were on the yeah. Sony lot for a yeah. while. And then he had like a building that was in front and over, and the X Files production office was actually right next door for a while too. Right. And in in that time, I brought a laser disc, a bullet in the head, mm-hmm. to Terrence Chang. Yeah. Who didn't have one for whatever reason. Wow. And I guess, you know, again, it, it was hard to get that stuff. Like you mm-hmm. say, you know, it's like the, the internet was kind of, it was big and empty. Mm-hmm. And finding stuff was not that easy. And finding stuff from people who weren't just going to steal your money was, was yeah. even more difficult. Right. And I was trading laser discs and stuff. And I bought a ton of those in Japan, too. Oh. And bootlegging the hell out of stuff, like left and right. Yeah, there was a store in Shibuya that we went to, yeah. where I remember you left with a stack of... Oh, and, and in Jimbocho, right down yeah. the street from where we were staying yeah. at the Sakura Hotel, I, yeah. I left with a bunch of laser discs of stuff that was um, out of print. But, you know, the thing is, like, it was... It was worth our time yeah. to go to Japan and hunt that stuff down. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you live in Japan now, yeah. that's not necessarily an advantage to yeah. getting rare collectibles because of Yahoo Japan. But, yeah. like, in the 90s, man, like, 
we would go, we, you know, the, the shows that we, we went to two shows, we went to Super Festival and Wonder Wonder-Con, Festival. Yeah, Wonder Festival. Super Festival is a toy, antique toy convention. Yeah. You know, that's what it was then. You know, it might be different now. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, more uh, art toys, more designer vinyls. But like it was a vintage toy thing. And like everyone was sneaking into the dealer's room. Uh, it was in the Science Museum near Jimbocho. Yep. And you'd take a lap. Yeah, one stop it was like over a by circle. Tokyoeki. Yeah. yeah. But it was like a, a circular shaped museum. Yep. And there was one room and another room. And like as dealers would bring in more toys from their cars to their table, like the landscape of what was being offered would change. Yeah. And, you know, there were people flying in from Europe, yep. from Hong Kong the every two, month. The two French collectors that were, yeah. were hardcore, like buying the same Lulu stuff that we were. Lulu. <laughs> yes. And they would stay at the hotel and they yeah. would all get drunk as could be like yeah. the first thing in the morning. Yeah. Um, and it was, which is, which is very interesting. Uh, is our, my second trip to Japan is very much like that. But the, um, that, that trip too, what was also unusual is that those two shows were like a couple of days apart. Right. And so yes. we, we nailed a magic week of being able to get yeah. there and hit these two things. They, they're not that close together anymore. Well, they're, they're biannual. Yeah. Like, I, who knows, like in 21 years. It'll like, come back around and they'll yeah, be like, like four an days eclipse. Apart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yes, they were, they were four days apart and. You know, we would go to toy stores mm-hmm. um, where people, they'd have bring in items. Yeah. You know, everyone's just like not putting stuff on eBay. It's just like, here's stuff from my closet or my collection and yeah, I need money. sales, yeah. yeah. And I'm, not even consigning. And they would purchase sell and it. resell. Yeah, purchase and resell. And so like there was that store near Jimbocho that we would go to that was on the second floor. Yep. But it, you, you couldn't say like, okay, on this trip, we've been to... Um, uh, you know, heroes in Shimokitazawa, yeah. check that off the list because the next day they could bring in. Yeah, because you, know, you had to do everything. I remember we were so excited to go to Mistress Mechanique, who had been um, yeah. doing these custom toys for all this going to guy stuff. And the guy that owned it dressed just like Lupin the Third. Yeah. And he's a total Ken, character. Ken Psyche, yeah. And most of their stuff was kind of bondage and adults, but they also had. Some of the, the jumbo machinery stuff. It was the weirdest, like two worlds crossing that never should have crossed. Yeah. And it wasn't until a few years later that Amandarake um, had such a huge presence in in Tokyo and in Yokohama, but specifically in uh, the Nagano Mall. There was like they have a they had at one point twelve different stores. Like there yeah. were twelve different Mandarakes. There were a couple dedicated to just the um, digest size comics. There were a couple that were just back issues of the magazines that became those digest size comics. Yeah. There were um, multiple original art galleries, and there were a ton of different animation cell places. And the animation cell places were divided by the type of animation it was so you wouldn't have any all the adult anime would be in one place Mm -hmm. and maybe next door was a cosplay costume sales place that was also mandarake and then next to that was something else and you'd walk down a hallway and on a a different half floor and there would be um sailor moon stuff and everything in that vein of an of anime and then across the hall would be the manga place that that was that type of manga and there were like I think six or seven different movie poster places so that was like my paradise because I was buying a lot of movie posters well it was 
like f- from a toy collecting point of view, yeah. you know, which is what I was into. You were just there more as a spectator. You yeah. you, you had a slightly different agenda than the rest of us. Yeah. But it was but it was awesome. Just yeah. as a spectator, not into that, I was like, oh my god, this is the greatest stuff ever. And I'd buy stuff just because I liked it, and not because I was necessarily collecting it. So I did end up buying like a pretty rare jumbo machinder for I think two hundred bucks mm-hmm. that I later sold to Coop. For like eight hundred or something, yeah. and a drawing which he never delivered, by the way. <laughs> and um, and I, I tease him about it all the time. He doesn't remember it. But um, there, you know, I did bring back stuff. And then the Godzillas, when um, when the Godzilla exploding Godzilla came out, you had to go to a movie theater to yeah, buy this we, premium no, toy. Right. We we saw uh, Godzilla versus Destroyer, where yep. he dies. Yep. And we and went to meltdown we, we went to the theater to get the meltdown, and you were the only one savvy enough to get it stamped by the theater. Yes, yeah. I got the tag stamped by the theater, yeah. and I picked up a couple, and everybody was buying as many as they could, and um, we realized that you didn't need to buy a ticket to buy the toy, which was great. So like, yeah. other people had, I mean, and movie tickets were expensive in Japan now. Now they'd be about the same right. as they are here, but we'd sell them at the shrine, and I, we would yeah, make a fortune. I have I have pictures of us in the Sakura Hotel. Yep. With just stacks of those uh, limited edition Burning Godzilla vinyls, yeah, yep. um, we sold them all. Yeah, but you, 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 the trip was you'd go to a few stores, mm-hmm. you know, and you'd see rival toy collectors there. Yeah, but you wouldn't. But this is the 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 quiet before the storm. You'd be like, oh, okay, this is a good thing because you you didn't want to blow all your money because the conventions were coming up. Yeah, and. You go to Super Festival. Wow, oh, wow, there's all these great deals. You go to Wonder Festival. Oh, there's, you know, still some good deals or, you know, in, that was some mostly a model kit convention, so it yeah. was a little off topic for me. Yeah. But there's still some cool stuff and I remember buying some cool stuff Under there. Under the tables, like the guys that would have all these model kits on the top mm-hmm. and then you'd look down and you'd be like, that's not a model kit, that's toys. Yeah. And like their focus, their bread and butter were these model kits that they were selling to um to model kit collectors, you know, the glue sniffing cl- crowd. Mm-hmm. And so toys were just kind of an afterthought to those dealers. But there was, there was but plenty was of toys. At butter, Wonder, yeah. there, there was plenty of toys at Wonder Festival. Yeah. So then the conventions would be over and then now it's time to hit the stores because yeah. like, you've got a handle on how much money you've got left. Yeah. Okay. So you hit the stores like, okay, going back to the store in Jimbo Show, going back to Mistress Mechanique to see if they've brought in more items. Yeah. Go back to the five stores in Shimo Kitazawa and then yeah. Magic Box. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, then there was like a wholesale vinyl district yep. where like newer vinyls that were being made, you know, you could go there and get, you know, deals that for, to, to bring back here and sell. And that was only three blocks from where we were staying. Like, I think when we first went, we made the mistake of getting on the subway and going there. Was, there then the, we realized no, the, we could walk. There was a better, th- that was a different place. Okay. There was a better place to get wholesale vinyl kaiju toys. Right. That like by my third or fourth trip I was going to, so that's where you'd sort of spend the tail end of your money. Yeah. And then I just remember like I would stay with you guys, and then I would stay a few days longer mm-hmm. at, at these um, Italian collectors, uh, Stefano Roleri, who's a great guy. Mm-hmm. I'd stay with him at his flat, and I'd just run out of money there, and I'd just stay there and buy these uh, like play video games because he was he was buying vintage video games. And bringing them back to Italy and making good money on them. Yeah. Because, you know, in Akihabara, where yep. was, that's where the you'd electronic go. Electronic, used yeah. district, yeah. So, but I just remember staying in his flat and playing vintage video games, waiting to go back to America. Yeah. And just like, this is a, this is the height of life, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just I, my, my bags were overflowing with toys to bring back. And I remember, too, that you had this little this little expense book. 
mm-hmm. that you you'd write in. You didn't include the price of any of the toys or anything you bought. You only wrote down how much you spent on the subway, yeah. how much you spent on food, how yep. much lunch was. Like you had given yourself a limited budget for anything that was not toys yeah. because that was why you were there. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of like looking over your shoulders. You'd be writing stuff in there, and so we we do these very long, very long. And I mean, by terms of we would spend eight or nine hours a day doing this mm-hmm. and also um, and the, the distances that we would travel sometimes. Yeah. And so um, when we get back to the Sakura Hotel and this is for people who don't don't know, it's kind of like a dorm style hotel where you've got um, either one or maybe three bunk beds uh, mm-hmm. in a single room and then everybody shares a shower and a bathroom in the middle yeah. layout type of thing and so all of us knew each other so we there were two rooms full of us I think on the second trip maybe even the first trip and um, and so there, we'd just like wind up we're punch drunk basically from being rocking around town and being so yeah. excited about having all these toys and we would just line everything up along the walls yeah. like it was um, you know, like it was Christmas Right. You know, take things out of the boxes and pose them in front of the boxes and then, you know, buy beers or something out of the vending machines downstairs and bring them upstairs and then start talking. And it's out of one of those amazing kind of um, experiences where the Santa Claus DM thing came about. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, because, again, this is really where we sort of started to get to know each other, even yeah. though both from Massachusetts, both have a lot of, you know, uh, uh, similar experiences yeah. from our youth. But, uh, you know, you'd play Dungeons and Dragons yep. and we you know, we're just reminiscing about Dungeons and Dragons. And this is one of our first conversations about it. And you and you use the term Santa Claus DM. Yep. Okay. Which I hadn't heard before, <laughs> but I, you know, as soon as you say it, you, you get it, yeah. you know, you understand what it is and you understand how that's oh, a bad you, thing. You, you fight an orc and yes. this orc has behind him a plus five sword, yes. you know, and you're kind of like, what kind of Santa Claus DM bullshit is this? And so I would, you, we were talking because we had both been dungeon masters and we had both been players <laughs> and I would get these players that had obviously had a Santa Claus DM before they came to me and I couldn't even get them to enter the Tomb of Horrors without them like fighting each other you know to get in so like I would pick Tomb of Horrors to punish them for like not knowing really how to play the game and not being strategic Mm -hmm. and within five minutes they'd always be dead like um, either they would kill each other because they were just jerks or the the module would kill them because they weren't intelligent and that was like one of the that was a dungeon yeah hardest dungeons with the demolition and and is that the dungeon that they use in Ready Player One? I'm not sure. I, I th- I've, not, I I've not read Ready Player One. I, I read it. I'm pretty sure that's the... And I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of bad understanding of Dungeons & Dragons yeah. in media. Sure. Um, and you, like, were, you were just talking before we started about Stranger Things. Okay. So l- let me get your take on this. Okay. Okay. First of all, I always called it... Demogorgon, Prince of Demons. Yes. Okay. That's 100. As soon as they start saying Demogorgon, I'm like, what are you talking about? That's that's not how it's pronounced. Yeah, okay? I agree. I agree. So the first episode, it starts off there. They think they're going to fight the Demogorgon. Then they're not. But then the Demogorgon shows up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Demogorgon, the single most powerful monster in the monster manual, yes. 200 hit points, yeah. 95% resistance to magic. Yeah. Okay. Demogorgon should wipe out their party. Yes. They're saying like cast protection or use a fireball. Yeah. That wouldn't work. No, those are terrible ideas because it sees resistance to magic. (laughs) I I mean, unless somebody, and we didn't see this, unless somebody has already rolled 
that a 96 or something <laughs> so that all spells are going to follow are going to be effective. No, because- Demogorgon shows up. It's not like they've been fighting him <laughs> right, for right. for five rounds, <laughs> right, you know, right, and have right. had magic rolls or or maybe you know if it's if it's an astute dm like a good dungeon master is always rolling dice so mm-hmm. that people don't get suspicious when he starts rolling dice mm-hmm. so um if you've got a, a dm that's always rolling the dice maybe he's already rolled the 96 percentile for them and magic <laughs> is going to be okay but it is a huge stretch now i will say that that the only really great and accurate depiction of people playing dungeons and dragons um, until you get to things like Big Bang Theory, um, where they're not playing that, they're playing other other games. But um, is ET, mm-hmm. where they're playing Dungeons and Dragons um, a couple days before Halloween and ET at, at, as, at the tabletop. Okay. And they don't dive headlong into it, but it wasn't offensive. What was great about it is that it was just seen as a thing kids do. You know, yeah. like these kids weren't particularly nerdy. They weren't particularly geeky. They were just kids and they were playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I thought that was, it was awesome. a popular thing at the time. Yeah. Now, I also remember they played Dungeons and Dragons and Freaks and Geeks. And mm-hmm. in the last episode, it was like discos and dragons. And they're like rolling for race. It's just like. He rolls and like, what? I'm a dwarf. I don't want to be a dwarf. And you don't roll for race. You don't roll for race, but I guess what you should do is you should pick your race after you roll your dice. And if you're di- if you've already rolled for certain attributes and you've got certain numbers, they're going to fit better with certain races. It just, like, it, but it's reverse engineered for to make a cheap joke. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then so let's get to Stranger Things season two. Yes, because I felt in season one, like when Eleven shows up. Why aren't these guys who we've seen playing Dungeons and Dragons talking about psionics? Eleven has psionics. Okay. What and, year is it supposed to be? Well, we don't find out until season two, which is eighty-five. Which is no, is eighty-four. It's Halloween of eighty-four. Okay, well, Fiend Folio is eighty-three, right? Y- yes. So Fiend Folio has psionic. Um, powered characters but that was unless you were and they should have been reading Dragon Magazine there would have been articles on psionics at no, that so point. psionics was like in the first monster manual the mind flare mm-hmm. is in the first monster manual not deities and demigods right. and you know I just felt like they should have been talking about psionics. Fiend Folio. I was thinking Fiend Folio. Oh, yeah. Fiend Folio. But, yes. but no, but, but psionics had been around. Okay. You know, it was, it was in the... I honestly the, didn't know how to use it, though. Like, when, when we were playing and, and we came across... Like, we'd, we'd read through, and as you're a dungeon master, you want to try to pick certain mm-hmm. monsters. I couldn't get a grasp of what psionics were and how I was going to integrate them into into my game playing mm-hmm. until Fiend Folio came out. I see. And Fiend Folio had the Githyankis, and they had, like, um, mm-hmm. other, like... I think better explanations of how it could be used because you had characters that didn't seem like they were tough, but they were very fearsome. And you're like, okay, we have to kind of dedicate some space to this. Right. And um, and it became confusing because, of course, psionics can involve taking over characters at the table. And how do you take over a character without the person playing it completely losing their mind? Yeah. You know, like if if you if you remove the ability for a player to play their character, especially in those early years and before things were very, very sophisticated, they would completely go go ballistic. Like mm-hmm. they would easily like stand up and and throw stuff around. I saw it happen. Okay. Well, I mean, I remember when psionics was explained to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, like a common analogy would be scanners. Yes, movie scanners. Yeah. So it's like that's what it does. Yeah. Uh, okay, got it. Mental powers or like when Fist of the North Star came out and he's sort of pushing people and making their heads yeah. blow up. Um, the Fury. Yes, the Fury. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. Uh, De Palma. Yes. Um, and uh, so 
in the first season of Stranger Things, I'm like, why aren't they talking about Psionics? Eleven is is clearly yeah. psionic based. That should be the analogy. So season two comes out, mm-hmm. and I see that there's an episode called The Mind Flare, mm-hmm. and I'm like, ah, finally they they realize their mistake. You know, <laughs> wrong. And then they're comparing the shadow <laughs> monster. They give this speech that the shadow monster is like the Mind Flare. Yeah. Which it really isn't. No, it's not. Am, am I wrong? No, you're like not they're wrong. saying hive mind, you know, uh, mind flayers get in fights with each other. Yeah. They don't have a hive mind. Right. I know there's like one head, uh, you know, mind flare in like their cities or something yeah. like that, but it's not. The, the, you, I'm you're, with you're, you. You're down the rabbit hole, too. I'm, I'm, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you on this. And so, but I, I think, too, that when people were talking about Stranger Things and they had this great love for it, and I watched it, it took me a while to get through. Honestly, the fr- I watched the first three episodes and I didn't think I was going to finish the first season. And I decided I was already this invested. I might as well. And just watching um, went on a ride run around like Chicken Little screaming yeah. that the sky is falling and her acting constantly being on 10. And granted, she has been an Oscar nominated actress. She's really never been that good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people used to say, you know, what a mess Dracula was. And they did blame Keanu Reeves. And I'm like, come on. Saying Keanu Reeves is a bad actor in Dracula is like writing, you know, speeding tickets at the Indy 500, that everybody's crummy in that except for Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. You know, even um, Anthony Hopkins is so over the top that it's hilarious. I mean, it, it's not supposed to be. It is a horror film. Yeah. And and when I was watching that show, the acting is all so atrocious that I just really wasn't drawn to any of the characters, didn't care what happened to anybody except maybe Eleven, who I felt was the only character that you could care about. And then in the second season, the acting got a lot better. And the actress, the young, the juvenile actor who plays Eleven, her acting got worse. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, is it that they now don't know what to do with this character? And clearly, you know, what you're bringing up and all this stuff that they should have been aware of and must have been getting feedback from in, in the um, in the from the first season didn't really get corrected. And what it was is like, what sounds cool? And that's like the least authentic thing and the thing that really bugs people who know better. But I mean, I can go deeper, man. Mine, Mine Hunters, Mine Hunters, they have a Toto song playing on the reader. They've hold the line playing, and that song didn't come out until a year later. <laughs> now this is really easy stuff to figure out when you're doing music clearances. The year of of, of publishing and the year of release are right there. And I mean, <laughs> if you know the era that you're covering, you. Real, music should be the easiest stuff to get right. Well, yeah, I didn't. I don't think that they knew exactly when it was taking place in the first season. Okay. I think they only decided when it was going to when Stranger Things was taking place in the second season. Yeah, because they say Halloween, nineteen eighty four, Ghostbusters has come out. Yeah, because before the you know they're saying things like, oh, I'll trade you for X Men one thirty four. X Men one thirty four is like nineteen eighty. Yeah, and, you know eighty one. So it's a few years old, and that's yeah. fine. That's not like because it could be collectible. Yeah, yeah. He's got it, but like I do think that um, Will should be talking about John Byrne yeah. more because he's such. A, I mean, that was a great moment in season one for me when she says, "Oh yeah, there were drawings in the kids' room," and mm-hmm. she says, "Were they good?" And he says, "No, they were just stick figures. It's not Will, like because yeah. she knows that he has artistic ability and yeah. that, you know, and that's cool, you know." Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a good moment. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna take our first break here. Um, and we're going to hear from some sponsors, and I should remind people, because it's been so long since we've had a new episode, that uh, we do have some advertising packages, and we've had some people come and approach us about these, and you too can reach this prime demographic. So you'll be back with us here on Pod Sequentialism with my guest, Mr. Tom Frank. I am Matt Kennedy. We'll see you in 60 seconds. 
Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am, of course, your host, Matt Kennedy. I am here with Mr. Tom Frank. Uh, we've been kind of uh, reminiscing and catching up on, on the things of our youth that we feel are being mistreated in pop culture, I guess, <laughs> amongst many other things, and giving a little uh, history of our trips to Japan and how kind of toy collecting has changed. Uh, we haven't talked about really how it's changed, but I think if you know what it is now, you know how different it was then. And I think that um, what I, I sort of hinted at, and I said I didn't want to bury the lead, is that you know Tom is is much better known for for other things um, from the things that initially made him famous among geeks like myself uh, when when we were just kind of impressed with his knowledge about Jumbo Machinders and Shogun Warriors and all that stuff. And of course, you've uh, you've been a screenwriter for quite a while. Mm-hmm. You've had um, aside from projects that were purchased and not produced, you you've been kind of steadily been working on projects that that kind of go places it's weird you know it's sort of like you flirt with success mm-hmm. um you know and you get paid and you, you just sort of there's always sort of a carrot dangling in front of you I and mean, yeah. show business is a really strange thing yeah and i think the longer you sort of deal with it the more you understand like i don't think you really understand show business until you see people whose success you are completely jealous of I understand what you're saying. Lose their house. That's yes. that. It's just like, wow, they had it all. Yeah. And now they don't. You know, it's, yeah. it's this real, um, you know, I think as you get older, you, you know, you, you become more wise. But yeah. what does wisdom mean? And I think wisdom means understanding success and failure through seeing it. Applied you know, intelligence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you, the things that you think are going to work often don't. Right. You know, I mean, just like an example, you know, tons about movies and like box office and stuff at the beginning of the summer. Mm -hmm. It's just like naming what are going to be the top grossing films of the summer. Mm -hmm. Okay. The tracking is already out. That's really hard. Yeah. You know, and it seldom, you know, you you go five for five in that. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's what life is, is sort of looking at things that... Although, I got to say, though, too, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit in that you can almost tell if you've seen the the film Mm -hmm. before it's been released and you are aware of how much advertising you've seen for the film at the point that you've seen it, you know if it's going to be a hit or not. There's very few times where a film that was very well made, that was very well marketed, hasn't done very well at the box office. It's usually that you see something that's really well made and you go, and then you, you enter the world and you're like, I don't see any billboards for this. I haven't seen any ads for this. I haven't seen any, you know, commercials Well, I mean, it's more this. like, uh, you know, if it's not being uh, released for screening, you know, yeah. if there's no Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the movie's opening tomorrow and there's no score listed, that's not good. Yeah. Uh, and there's certain things like um, uh, if, if the rating suddenly changes from R to PG. Yeah. They know they've got something that's no good. They have to make their money on opening weekend. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, Rollerball, I think they did that with, and that was a good call. Yeah. Where it was like, it was supposed to be R, you know, like the 70s one, and they make the change. So, you know, people are only so stupid, they kind of know when they've got a dud, but like... Yeah. The stuff is tough to predict. And then the January dumping ground isn't a dumping ground anymore. It's like now they're actually targeting that weird space where people don't expect much and they're counting on money. And so, you know, comedies often get thrown into January if they don't know how to market them because people are ready Mm -hmm. to laugh after the holidays. And, um, you know, of course, there's tentpole movies that don't become tentpoles. What's more surprising, 
honestly, and I think you'd probably agree, is when terrible movies make a ton of money. Yeah. You know, I'm uh, not, I'm not going to name any films, but um, there's certainly been some films that have made hundreds of millions of dollars that aren't just not very good. They're terrible. I mean, it's it's good to look, like the further you get away from it, the more interesting the sort of case study is. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I don't know, three four years ago, I took a look at Porky's, yeah, uh, which was just giant, yeah, and it seems so dated now, yeah, because of the sex. Yeah. You just forget like how big, uh, you know, teen sex movies in the eighties were. You yep. know, the the heavy R plus, yep, and like guys needed to go to that. To, for, to get their jollies. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they just don't need that now because of the internet. Because, yeah. like, porn is just everywhere. Like, the idea of, of having a, 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 a sex teen movie yeah. just seems stupid now. Now what's funny is that they're sort of back, but they're not teen sex comedies. They're now kind of proto-feminist, um, um, usually female-written, female-directed, gross-out comedies. Mm-hmm. That they've in a brilliant way, taking control of what was ostensibly a very misogynistic type of film mm-hmm. and turned it on its head and done something really kind of amazing with it. And some of the films are great, you know, and you've mm-hmm. got your bridesmaids and some of them aren't that great. You got your bad moms. Mm-hmm. But like, I think that that type of film just got a little bit older and usually that doesn't translate. Like, it's not like you can have a, a juvenile kind of science fiction fantasy grow up into an adult science fiction fantasy. Those films mm-hmm. are still very much connecting with teenagers. They don't mm-hmm. really grab an older clientele, although they could say that, you know, people like us are maybe uh, emotionally um, stunted and, and that we still appreciate the stuff that we liked when we were kids. But when I, I also went back and, and watched Porky's not that, that long ago because I had made a comment about how I'm sort of embarrassed by the attitudes of a lot of the comedies and stuff that we grew up on, the jokes we used to tell when we were in, you know, fifth and sixth grade that are so incredibly insensitive yeah. to um, to uh, women, to um, LGBT, to, to, to every ethnicity. Yeah. Well, you know. I mean, I, I feel that, like, making sort of racist jokes against African-Americans was certainly, a you know, a, a thing that was done, yeah. but it was done brazenly. Yeah. It was like, yeah, I know this might not be uh, safe to say, but I, I, I know I'm crossing the line here, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they're sort of sticking their, you know, uh, thumb up, you know, with their nose as they're doing it. Mm-hmm. But like jokes about homophobia, jokes yeah. about Asians, which yeah. is like, there's nothing wrong with that, right? You watch them now, they were you can't rampant. believe it. Yeah, they were rampant. And, you know, also the, like, and the, the kind of date rape culture that was so much a part of those films, like it was always somebody yeah. trying to get some girl drunk and take advantage of her. Like that was the plot 16 of, Candles. Like, yeah. yeah, go sleep with my girlfriend. Yeah, like that, that, that whole film. I mean, like, and there's tons of it. I mean, that's, that is, that's one of the least... I wouldn't yeah. say it's the least offensive because that also has an incredibly offensive Asian stereotype yeah. in it. But um, as far as that type of film, it was somewhat innocuous because it wasn't narrated film. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is that another film of that era, which is about a bunch of horny guys trying to get laid, that actually does resonate, and I, I like it even more now than I did then, is Last American Virgin. Yeah, Lemon Popsicle. Yes, and yeah. so uh, so Bose is has become kind of a friend. Like I, I've I've gotten to know Bose Davidson, and he's of course mm-hmm. part of the Expendables. He's part of that franchise. Yeah. And um, it's and a harsh he, movie. 
It so is. Harsh. It's hectic. I mean, I'm, I don't want to give any spoilers, but um, imagine a film that is presented as being like the quest for the perfect girl, and then your best friend knocks up that girl and leaves her, and then she becomes your girlfriend, and then as you um, take care of her through this very trying time, it involves an abortion, yeah. and then she leaves you. <laughs> and, and goes back to the guy that knocked her up. goes back to the yeah. guy that knocked her up. And, and you know, you left driving home the pizza, the pizza delivery cars, the yeah. credits roll. I mean, it's sort of a very, it was a very brave movie in its time that it didn't sugarcoat reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, you got like the funny guys and they're, you know, the... The, the interesting situations of the kids, you know, getting drunk and getting caught by their parents, getting caught, you know, um, well, um, you know, Did in you a date s- situation like, but, the, but that was it. There was no, like, Last American Virgin 2. Right. But there was a big Lemon Popsicle series. Yes. And I guess in... Because it, it does, like... You, you watch Last American Virgin, you're like, wait, that's the end? Yeah. What? Hold on. So it does continue in the Israeli, in the Israeli ser- films, series. Yes. And, and those that, were remade all over the world as well in, in different languages. But the, like that character, the the girl that he winds up, you know, getting the abortion for, paying for it and taking care of the her. The Pamela Franklin character yeah, she, in the American she, film. Yeah, she sort of falls apart in the second one. Why? It's, it's even worse. That's amazing. And... Uh, yeah, I, I never saw that, but I was reading up on it because like yeah. I got to find out what happens on here. You know, yeah. it's a big cliffhanger. But I, I think uh, the uh, I hate to bring them up, but they were a good video store and they're still around. The cine, uh, cinephile on Santa Monica, um, oh, you know, yeah. they just cut shut down the, the the theater, but they had some. Well, Cine Cine family weren't connected to cinephile. They were both the, the same guy, right? No, no, family across the street was put with Cine family. I don't think Cinephile Video was connected to that. Weren't they both Hadrian? Like he ran, I mean, I remember seeing Hadrian at Cinephile. I think he used to work there, but I don't think it was his place. I could be mistaken, but um, that place closed down a long time ago, right? No, it's still open next still to New York. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't make it over there that, that much anymore. So this is very regional for people who, <laughs> yeah. are, who are listening from other parts of the country, but um, there's sort of a, a small network of video stores that had been around for a very long time. Cinephile wasn't around for a very long time. They actually opened around the time when many video stores were closing, but they were right next door to the New Art Theater, which is um, one of the places where Rocky Horror ran for decades and where films like Man Bites Dog premiered and um, you know other like kind of underground um, popular import films. Uh, John Woo films were first playing there. Right. And yeah. now a lot of that, that fire has kind of moved to the New Beverly, which had gotten an injection of money from Quentin Tarantino a few years ago. And another place is, uh, used to be the Silent Movie Theater, which um, was turned into Cinefamily, and there's been recently a huge debacle um, in that there was a ton of sexual harassment going on, possibly sexually assa- sexual assault, where um, one of the principal owners was um, kind of preying on underage interns and that it had gone on for a while and finally someone just broke the silence and, and the place shut down like pretty quickly, yeah. like within, a, within a, a couple of months they were done. And that's sort of been reflected in, in a lot of what's going on in Hollywood. And I mean... I. Every industry has it, and I've, I've been seeing certain reports even in, in fine art. And there are people that I know that interned for painters yeah. and were and would complain to me about how handsy and inappropriate they were. And as this is happening, I, I reach out to a few. I'm like, now's your chance. I mean, like, now you can totally call this jerk out. Mm-hmm. I can't do it because it didn't happen to me, and I didn't see it. Right. 
you know, so I would I would open myself up for some kind of slander. Right. But it, there are a lot of people who must be shaken in their shoes right now, just expecting, mm-hmm. you know, th- that second shoe to drop because they know they were inappropriate. But there's even more that don't know that they were inappropriate. Right. That were absolutely inappropriate and have just not allowed themselves to even contemplate. Well, as I mentioned before, um, you know, I did have this script optioned in 95 to Miramax. Yeah. And I remember having my first development meeting there. You know, mm-hmm. we were assigned a few rewrites and they were just waiting to like us to go through our steps mm-hmm. so they could hire someone bigger. Yeah. And that's that's fine. You know, that's show business. I understand that. Yeah. But by that in that first meeting, by the end of the first meeting, someone had told me either the secretary or someone in the meeting itself that all of Miramax's money goes to settling sexual harassment suits because of Harvey. Wow. Okay. And that's so, at the very beginning. That's that's 95. Yeah. And that is, you know, a, a screenwriter who's like not up the totem pole at all there that they're looking to get rid of. Yeah. So that's like how common that was. And I remember asking uh, like someone, like a, a woman who was in development with Woods, not with Miramax. And she didn't have any stories. Mm-hmm. You know, she mentioned something else that was like, Sexual harassment, but it wasn't like on the same level. I'll tell you what it was. It was like uh, someone at, at a office, I don't remember, where like was walking towards her and he pretended to trip and like he was going to grab her breast for support for falling. He didn't. <laughs> wow. He, he didn't touch her. Right. You know, but like it was just uh, like that's and, and to me, that's sort of. That's definitely sexual harassment. Yeah. It's an uncomfortable workplace. That's something you report to HR and yeah. get settled. Yeah. You know, that's not a, 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 a different ballpark. Right. All of this stuff certainly, that's going on. Certainly, certainly. You know? um, and even but, cer- and certainly different um, to an extent from what we're seeing about the, uh, the Al Franken situation, which um, every day the impact of her initial accusation is lessened by everybody who was in the room. But I think that he handled it right. You know, that whether whether or not it, there was um, something inappropriate happening, he tackled it as though it had happened um, mm-hmm. and said, you know what, this was a long time ago and I'm sorry. Um, you know, he embraced it as though, you know, if, if, if something had happened, it's better to say I'm sorry and then figure out the specifics of it than to try and turn this into some other situation where right. somehow the, acu- the accused the accuser's fault. And um, and I think that his apology was much better than the apology that we saw from um, Louis C.K., yeah. which did not contain Wasn't the all-important words, I am sorry, mm-hmm. uh, in the apology, but instead included three times how much respect the people that he had, um, had done this to had for him, an admiration, mm-hmm. which was weird. And I think that even the apology had an air of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? I mean, like ego, like mm-hmm. the apology had like a real air of ego and kind of um, cockiness that like, oh, this is, I've just written the greatest apology ever. And here it is. It's and like, because uh, it was like lacking, you're like, ooh. Charles Van Doren, you know, quiz show. Yeah. He's admitting what he did and everyone's, you know, yeah. sucking up to him. It's weird. Like with Louis C.K., I remember I was doing stand up comedy. I started, I went to the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. but I'm from Massachusetts. So I, I was doing it in Michigan, mm-hmm. but I would come home from the summers and I would do it in Boston. And Louis C.K. was around then. Yeah, in that era. And it was, uh, you know, well, there's a couple things going on with Boston comedy and stand up. Stand up was huge then. Yeah, yeah. You know, much bigger than it is now. You had the Paradise, and you had. Um, you had Knicks, you Knicks. had. Um, 
Comedy Connection. You would catch a rising star. You yep. had Dick Doherty's Comedy Vault. Yep. They opened Duck Soup. There was like four yeah. places that you could go that were right next to each other yep. in Boston. But there was this, and there was Stitches, but there was this uh, sort of civil war. Uh, and, and this is easy to forget, like of clean comedy yeah. and dirty comedy. Right. That is Blue not, material. Yeah. Because you had... Seinfeld and Jay Leno, mm-hmm. okay, clean comedy. That's what everyone was doing. And then you would Andrew Dice Clay, yeah. you know, who was filthy and like, uh, yeah. but the, the clean comedians Bob were- Bobcat, who was very much part of the Boston yeah. scene. Were very snobby yeah. about it. Like, hey, we're doing the, the better comedy and, and, and harder. And um, like, and, and that was definitely taking place in Boston, mostly with Catch a Rising Star and Knicks. Mm-hmm. Like the snobby comedy versus the blue collar guys who are just, you know, being funny and not being elitist. Yeah. Um, and Louis C.K. seemed to be more of the connection and catch a rising star crowd. And then I just remember seeing at the, at the Montreal comedy festival, not that long after mm-hmm. he was doing the dirty show, Yeah. which was like a surprise yeah. at the time. Cause it's just like, well, wait a minute, you're sort of distancing yourself and being, uh, you know, more clever, you know, not dirty, yeah. but there was definitely that side of him. Like, no, I really want to do dirty stuff, yeah. like really filth it up. And I, I just remember that striking me. It's like, why are you doing this? Why are you sort of aligning yourself on the other side of the civil war? Yeah. You know, and I was younger and snobbier about comedy. I realized there's plenty of great dirty comedians <laughs> as well. No, yeah. having seen your, your standup, um, not in that era, but certainly in the, um, in the, early 90s here I was I thought it was hilarious but it was so nerdy yeah. it was so like hyper Dennis Miller referential to nerddom mm-hmm. there was this, like my favorite was like the bad luck bad luck schleprock yeah. you snuck bad luck schleprock right. into a joke of like a five level joke where bad luck bad luck schleprock was kind of the payoff and I looked around the room and I laughed like I, I laughed out loud mm-hmm. and it was like you could hear the echo of my laugh on the walls that nobody else <laughs> in the room got the bad luck schleprock which actually made me feel even better about the fact that I had laughed <laughs> and then you know I was like oh this is the greatest thing you know it's so then it's it's like in and then everybody, I think once somebody laughs, then everybody else feels like they can laugh too. But um, that that you were very much, you took the things that you really enjoyed and made them your comedy. Perhaps that's what Louis C.K. did, is that he, yeah. he instead, he, he wasn't having a ton of success necessarily as being a clean comic and figured that if he was going to break out, he had to break out the I, easy way. I, I would sort of disagree with that. Like, I think he did an excellent job of just exploring himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't necessarily mean with the dirty material, mm-hmm. like I, the, the stuff, you know, the, the modern era Louis C.K. stuff mm-hmm. has a lot of brilliant bits to yeah, it, certainly. you know, and that, that is, is some of the finest standup, you know, of this generation, mm-hmm. um, that's very enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, you know, it, it's weird. There's, uh, it was the episode of Gaffigan where Gaffigan dreams that he wasn't he wasn't a clean comic and how different his life would be and he's not married it's like the kind of um you know christmas carol of Mm -hmm. him or it's a wonderful life i guess where he um he's not the clean family guy and instead he he starts to become a blue comic and he becomes like this insanely popular um andrew dice clay type comedian and um, and because that's so not what Gaffigan is all about, it ends. He, you know, at the end of the episode, he's like, "Oh, of course, I want to be, you know, the Family Guy. Where are my mm-hmm. kids? You know," and 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 goes back to that life. So it also kind of interestingly um, mirroring um, the movie Family Man, 
<laughs> directed by not so family guy yeah. you know uh, Brett Ratner and it's a fine film, but um, and his deal's dead now too. You know that mm-hmm. uh, Gal Gadot saying that she will not um, right. come back as Wonder Woman if, if he's he makes a single way. penny from it, if he's involved in any way. So the um, a lot of these things are not just happening on the peripheries of entertainment, and especially not for this audience, which I think is ostensibly a lot of people who um, read comics and enjoy comic books. That it is very much impacting the um, the creative forces behind these, and I think that there are going to be people who don't live where movies are made and have an idea about the film industry and think, oh, what's the big deal? Or, oh, why they keep, you know, they're going to they're gonna pull these talented people out of making these movies and now the movies are all going to suck or something and not understanding that that type of friction makes sets really uncomfortable. Yeah. And that makes inherently bad, not bad movies, but the movies are less good than they can be because the people working on them are under a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And people that are totally stressed out don't tend to make the best work. And would you would you say that that is a fairly safe assessment? I mean, assessment? look, uh, entertainment is going to survive. Yeah, you know, you can for take, sure. You, you can take you can uh, cherry pick whoever you think the best people are. Take them out. New people will come in. Yep. You know, so uh, overall, we're we're entering uh, uh, an era of more enlightenment, yep. of more understanding, of more uh, sympathy. At the end of the day, uh, if more men. Uh, decide not to abuse their power with women that they work with, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's, I think that's a chess position that can kind of be won, you know, or improved and not necessarily won. I think there's going to be less sexual harassment because it's going to be risky. Mm -hmm. You know, does that mean that women are going to be hit on at bars less? No. no. Does that mean that women are going to be sent less dick pics on the internet? No. no. Not at work. At work, you know. Yeah, at work it will happen less. It'll happen less, yeah. and that's and that's a good thing. Yep. You know. So uh, I'm not saying that you know all of women's problems are going to be solved now, mm-hmm. but all of this discussion is is certainly uh, uh, refreshing. Right. You know. And, and like, hey, this is wrong. I can't get away with that. Whoa. You know, people have to be thinking, well, here, here, let's, let's backtrack. Sure. In 1993, mm-hmm. I went to a party and this woman was talking about how she was at the airport and this guy came up to her and said that he was a Hollywood director and he thought that she was so wonderful and he just started kissing her ass. And another friend of mine just goes, oh. Was that James Toback? Exactly. And she goes, how did you know? Yeah. But she- The soulmate thing is usually the one that that tips people off. She had read the Spy Magazine article. Yeah. Okay. So as soon as she found out it was James Toback, she knew what he was all about. Yeah. So I'm not saying that had that article not come out, that she would have been- uh, swept up by the spell of James Toback and taken advantage of. You know, she seemed like a pretty tough cookie, but, you know, that's all speculation yeah. as to what would have happened and what wouldn't have happened. All I'm saying is that Spy Magazine article in 1988 or whatever it was, yeah. you know, spread some information that was useful, Yeah. you know, and let people know, like, hey, this, this, here's what this guy is about. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're dealing with a whole bunch of that now. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see now uh, when we, because we have nostalgia, because mm-hmm. nostalgia changes generation to generation. You know, now it's 2017. We should be nostalgic for 
1997, mm-hmm. but we're seemingly nostalgic for 1984. So it's like there's yeah. a weird there's a weird tale to to things that's happening. And as we go back, you know, Mad Men, um, brilliant run, ended a couple years ago, and it seemed like those producers had no idea what to follow with. And to me, there's there's a really there's a couple of very easy projects to follow with, which I'm not going to mention on the air because I may have a pitch. But um, <laughs> but you know, when you talk about advertising, you talk about magazines, you talk about that that kind of era and that type of entertainment, and 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 how. Uh, how that enters our perception, you know, that we remember plot, plot, fizz, fizz, and we remember all these, all these things that were jingles that were developed to sell things. And you could argue that for a long time that motion pictures really only existed to sell you popcorn and soda, mm-hmm. and that the idea of them being important entertainment was um, a relatively new development. You know, early on there was just the spectacle of it being something that you could, you'd go to a theater and see that you couldn't see at home because you didn't have the equipment. And when television came in, the idea of it being a spectacle was even more because you had to show somebody something they couldn't see on a small TV screen. Mm-hmm. And and then in the age of the blockbuster, it was about getting getting butts in seats and selling them extra stuff because that's where the theaters made their money. Mm-hmm. And that's about when the power shifted to theater owners. And theater owners decided that you know that you had to have a movie rated because they didn't want to show X-rated films, it was it was a, a difficult sell to their their to core their audience, family. the family mm-hmm. audiences, and so now with the way that we're watching movies changing a lot, and the power of those theater owners starting to become less and less, um, you know, you mentioned that no one is looking for scripts of original material that they're all looking for, you know, sequels and existing um, you know IPs, and. Do you feel that that makes television a little bit easier? Do you feel that that makes... I mean, I see a lot of stuff getting greenlit on Netflix and on Hulu. Granted, a lot of the stuff that I'm watching is The Exorcist, which is a legacy property. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a lot of other um, original programming that seems to be doing really well. Do you think that TV is like it is in most other countries, becoming a little bit more powerful than film? Um, In some ways, sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that we're watching TV is vastly different than when we were watching it one one half hour or hour a week. It was way more formulaic because when you're seeing the formula a week apart, you can tolerate it better. Like if if you watched Gilligan's Island on Netflix, Mm -hmm. you'd lose your mind at how repetitive it is, (laughs) you know, where you have season long story arcs now. Yeah. you know, you could say that that is sort of the, you know, the the wave of the future, you yeah. know, three act structure yeah. for movies. You know, it, it works when you're in a movie theater for two hours. Mm-hmm. But if you're watching, is that the the future of consuming media? Yeah. You know, or, or is a bigger canvas, even something like Avatar, The Last Airbender, mm-hmm. you know, way more story arc than cartoons before. Yeah. Um, People seem to like that. People seem to like binge watching now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the other thing is like, is TV in trouble? Like, do kids watch TV or are right. they just on their phone watching YouTubers? Right. Um, Does you know, that count too- though? Does that count as TV now? <sighs> eyeballs or eyeballs. Right. You know, I know it can. Uh, uh, I will bet the farm that ABC does not like YouTubers. <laughs> yeah. You know, unless, I mean, they're all buying their own YouTube channels. You know, but is is Markiplier taking away from them? Right. You know, or right. or, or pet videos? Or, was that making the the delivery product that much shorter? You no, know, we went from single reel, mm-hmm. you know, 
what movies three well nickelodeons yeah. you know um the how long is that like 20 seconds mm-hmm. to um single reel films in the silent era to, two reelers yep two reelers and then to um features mm-hmm. and then we went back to television to the the half hour format which really mirrored radio mm-hmm. in, the, in the half hour and one hour programs and i think early television was all one hour mm-hmm. if, I'm, if i'm not mistaken and then the sitcoms come in to fill out time slots that were available on different coasts. Mm-hmm. And now it gets longer with the flow of, of seasons. But what's what's interesting, and then it gets shorter again with, with um, YouTube sketches. So, like, we're, we're still kind of, like, all over the map. And I think that we've, we've already caused a tremendous amount of attention deficit disorder among um, our children. You know, that, that right. kids that are too young are seeing television that's too fast and their brains can't process it and it kind of creates major um developmental problems yeah we, we kids raised on ipads you yeah. know just like hey we're playing a game yeah you know what, whatever it is it, it it's a real thing yeah or, and, you know if, if addiction to smartphones is it seems like a weird addiction mm-hmm. because we're all kind of aware of it mm-hmm. we're all we're not in denial about it it's, ah, i don't have a problem yeah you know what i'm on my phone too much yeah but I have no plan to do anything about it. Right. You know, I re- yeah, it's, yeah, that is a problem, but... Well, until they draw a direct connection between telephone signals and brain cancer, people aren't going to take it seriously. It was like cigarettes. It was like, oh, I'll smoke cigarettes until I drop dead and I'll be yeah. old because my dad smoked cigarettes until he was 100. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, oh, there's other problems. But the, um, I think that the nature of entertainment changing creates a lot of opportunity. And I think that specifically for somebody who has a background in comedy like you do, that... Um, your screenplays specifically, too, are kind of like, I mean this in the best possible way, they're like a relentless onslaught of a thing in a good way. Mm-hmm. That it's like, it, it's building and it's building and it never lets you out of the room. Like, you never get the breather. You never get to, like, take a second and say, like, you know, I'm referring, Prom War was kind of like that. Wall to Wall was kind of like that. And um, where it's like, that was the aim. It's like, I want to do a movie that's all action. You know, I want to yeah. do a, a film that's all funny. You know, it's yeah. like maintaining that for any distance has always been a challenge. But for this generation, they expect it because mm-hmm. they're used to three minutes, four minutes, three minutes, four minutes, three minutes, seven minutes, three yeah. minutes, two minutes, one minute. And if your story structure is able to accommodate little anecdotes that can carry a structure through for a long period of time, then you will have kind of created this new thing that people will really, really need. And not to say that it's a good or a bad thing. And I mean, we can talk about the merits of Proust, you know, and we can talk about, you know, um, the importance of of theater and, and of character development. That's not always what people want. And I think that you you're irresponsible as a content producer if you don't pay attention to what people actually want. And I think that that's been a major problem with television and has been a major problem with films is that they're really not listening to the audience. And it's so funny, the sort of the format and the needs of media and entertainment are Mm. changing. You know, and you're talking, you talked about uh, uh, proto-feminist sex comedies. Yeah. You know, that's a new market that's being underserved so let's serve it and let's change this let's keep with the times update and and it's just so strange to me when you look at like uh different forms different periods of history where it just wasn't like that what's the thing with the mask comedy del arte or whatever was around for three four hundred years yeah venetian um marketplace um just like or, or even like ancient egypt yeah ancient egypt 
like progress wasn't a thing. Yeah. You know, everything's just going to kind of stay the same. Yeah, we'll bribe this country or that country to keep things status quo. But the idea of sort of what's the new thing? How do I, you know, no one from ancient Egypt, the, the idea, like if someone from ancient Egypt came here and they saw someone like tech shaming an iPhone 6, they, that would just seem so bizarre to them. I would imagine on so many levels. <laughs> hopefully, yes. hopefully, you know, unless they had their own iPhones, uh, we won't we won't tackle the Danikin crowd. But um, I mean, my gosh, the, the the thing, the dangerous thing about having a guest like you is that there are twenty seven different things that we could talk about. I mean, there there is an object yeah. in this room that shall not be mentioned because we can probably do a whole episode on it. Um, that could be, like I said, a whole episode. Well, and you know, I'll tell you, Matt, like. It's so weird. Like, you're so knowledgeable about a lot of different... You, you don't come across, like, the way that you should come across. Okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you... This is like, dangerous. Uh... What I should say about... I should say that that Matt Kennedy. God, he's such a know-it-all. He thinks oh. he has everything to say about this. He just energe- you know, interjects this, you know, factoid about this thing. <laughs> That was what I was talking about. It comes across as so imperious, but you don't. Right, You right. really don't. Right. Like, as soon as I, you know... I'm like, wow, that was a great conversation I had with Matt Kennedy. And I should be saying, like, what a high-minded, like... <laughs> I guess I've never like, been that guy, but I, mean, I guess I've also never you, you, profited from it. So there's there's that aspect to it. But um, I, when I was a young younger kid, I probably had a little bit of know-it-all to me. But, um, you know, I think that it's dangerous to do that in, in Los Angeles, of course, because there's always somebody who knows a little bit more. But I think that part of why I like stuff is because I'm really into it. And like you, you know, mm-hmm. it's like you would you knew that there were other people that, that knew what you didn't know about something. Yeah. And maybe as an aggregate, they didn't know as much. But it wasn't going to serve you to be like, actually, it's this, this, this. Yeah. It was like, oh, that's really cool, you know, and kind of like keep a tab on that somewhere in your head. And if, you're, if you thought a little bit more about it, write it down and then research it and then come back and be like, wow, that was really cool. You want to have as many of those people in your life as possible. And like when I have people on the show, I have people on the show usually that it, that it's like oh, I can't wait to hear what they have to say about this. Yeah, that's you the know? thing. I mean, you're, you're talking about sort of the format of entertainment and media, and we're sort of ignoring the the elephant in the room of podcasts. Yeah, you know, podcasts is a brand new media, mm-hmm. and it's exciting and it's working. And like uh, there was that book, "Amusing Ourselves to Death," yep. Neil Postman, which is yeah. sort of slamming TV. And I don't think podcasts sort of suffer the same, uh, you know vapidness Mm -hmm. that he accuses television of having and some do (laughs) (laughs) well sure but you know just uh you know the rise of the long form interview is like an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing that you really couldn't have predicted and i Uh, you know i feel that that comes from two things i think that in in one of these things may be one of the most dangerous progenitors of the situation we're in now is that 60 Minutes was su- such a good news show mm-hmm. that it started to make money. And then people decided 20 years later that news divisions had to make money mm-hmm. because 60 Minutes could make money. And now we're in the situation that we are now where we're, it's not news, yeah. that you've got quote unquote news channels that aren't news channels. And I don't mean to say that, that they're fake news, which is like just a garbage explanation or, and, and a term, but that it's focused. I mean, it's curated to a real specific bent. And I think that that is the disservice of what news is, which I think is just supposed to, I, I would hope presents without opinion a series of facts that people can absorb in their own and discuss. And now you've got 
different channels with a very different political bent yeah. that rely upon certain advertisers and you know you, you see advertisers pull when they have a problem with something that somebody says and and I think that but that was also the birth of that in the Dick Cavett show perhaps of like the long form interview becoming a thing and I love Charlie Rose Charlie Rose is, is I think the greatest interviewer of our time I love his program he can talk about anything he had Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden Did was it, on Charlie Rose like a couple weeks ago uh, he made such a mistake oh, he, in my I'm book sh- I'm, I'm sure that I've does. never forgiven him oh boy okay so and, and I care about this so much. Yes. Okay. And as far as I'm concerned, he just dropped the ball. Okay. And I, I do know the answer for this. This is a story, though. Okay. So uh, Pulp Fiction comes out. He has Quentin Tarantino on. Yeah. Okay. And Tarantino is talking about his influences. And of course, he talks about Howard Hawks, you know, yeah. who just worships and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he just talks about, you know, you know, you listen to John Carpenter talk about Howard Hawks. Yeah. And, you know, it's more really, so. More so. I mean, it's very evident in the work of, of Carpenter. Really easy to like Howard Hawks, yeah. you know, and appreciate him. And you just talk about his invisible style. So Tarantino's going off on Howard Hawks and saying, like, God, you know, you, you look at a lot of directors and you know them from their major work. And then you'll watch some of their early stuff. And maybe it's interesting, and maybe you see why they got to where they are, but it's not, you know, it's usually the best stuff that really makes them. Please don't tell me he said something bad about Stagecoach. No. Okay. He he says, like, and Howard Hawks, I never got that. Like, everything that I saw from his entire body of work was great. He never let me down except for one time. And then Charlie Rose goes off and asks another question instead of, what was the one movie that Howard Hawks let you down on? Right. Okay. Tarantino was begging him to ask that question, and it's just like, and Charlie Rose just like, "Ah, I don't know, so so what's next on my list of things to ask you? (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe... So I, I'm the king of of of, of uh, explaining a possibility that is so unlikely, right? But what if it was like, and depending upon the era that this that this interview was from, um, it could be like it's easy for Tarantino to take over an entire show. That it's kind of great if you know that he wants you to ask a question and not a, to not ask it to just kind of leave it dangling there to see how that happens. <laughs> like if you've got like a, a bit of a sadistic streak, maybe that was it. But um, I think possibly that. I mean, when you're, if you're Charlie Rose and you're kind of like a very, a very level, mm-hmm. almost monotone um, interviewer who, who has a lot of knowledge, when you talk to somebody like that that's gonna, that is going to go way down the rabbit hole, he might be thinking <laughs> of his audience or like, my audience doesn't really care about that. And he, he's, he's clearly wrong in this case, and I, I, I'd love to know the answer to that question. Okay. And so, you do know the answer to I the do question. know the answer to the question. It wasn't easy. Because you asked him in person, probably at the Egyptian. And, and no, I was at a HBO party for um, Norma Jean in Maryland, which Mira Sorvino was in, and she was dating Tarantino right, at the time. Right, So I'm yeah. at that party, and like, there's Tarantino. I got to ask him the question. And he's just like, it was this buffet, and I just sort of muscle my way in. <laughs> And I just go, I just got to ask you one question. What was the one time, you know, I just, I got to get it out. Here's my one chance. So I'm face to face with Tarantino and I say, what was the one time that Howard Hawks let you down? And he goes, he had no idea, no context. You know, what the hell is this kid talking about? And he just goes, he never did. And then just left. Okay. So I tell this to my writing partner Mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, we're big, we'd been guessing, trying to, what what is the movie, you know, that it could possibly be. Redline 7000 was one that we were thinking of. So... Talk about going deep. So he sees Tarantino, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, eight months later at the Egyptian. Yep. You know, so this is before Tarantino's taken over the new Beverly. This is in the yeah. 90s still. Yeah. So he he's much, you know, he, he approaches it much better than I do. He sees Tarantino and he goes, I think you can settle a bet for me. 
Yeah. Okay. And this gets Tarantino's attention. Yeah. He says, okay, what? He goes, you were on the Charlie Rose show. He said, well, you know, one time you let you down. What was it? And Tarantino says, well, what do you think it was? And so we, he gave him three choices of what? One was Redline 7000. One was, what's the third John Wayne movie that's right at the end? Rio Lobo. It's Rio Bravo. Uh, he then, loves Rio Lobo. No, no, no. There's three. Right. It's, it's Rio Bravo is the first right. one. And then there's the one with James Caan, which is, it's the third one that, that isn't as good as okay. the first two. The one, the one with uh, Ricky Nelson is good. The one with James Caan is good. Yeah. The third one, not, not as good. Okay. You know, it's a step down. And then uh, whatever the third one was that we guessed, this is the 90s, cut me some slack. Yeah. Uh, the third Howard Hawks movie. He goes, no, it was none of those. And it was the crowd roars um, with James Cagney playing this race car driver, um, which I've seen and I like, uh-huh. you know, and it's very similar to Speed Racer, the plot, like his brother's yeah. like, missing. And um, Did he just didn't feel like Cagney was in the role or there was? I think he said he saw it in a double feature with Ceiling Zero, mm-hmm. which was another, you know, Howard Hawks movie. Mm-hmm. And, they, and would, I think Cagney was in that as well. And he goes, it just, you know, it's kind of a goofy, silly movie. Yeah. But, um, you know, I like it more than Tarantino does. But there's also, you know, speaking of goofy, silly movies, you've got, um, what's the movie about Coca-Cola moving into the um, the Eastern Bloc that Cagney's in? He plays the- One, two, three. One, two, three. I yeah. love that movie. Yeah. It's I a mean, lot of fun. And that is, that's, that's Billy Wilder, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, of course, Billy Wilder- definitely a very different approach to filmmaking and, and tone than, than Howard Hawks. But the, um, and Tarantino's like one of these guys, you know, like you talk about, it's like until you've seen somebody, you, know, you, you don't think it's possible. And then you see somebody who's like you, you know, become hugely, hugely popular. And I mean, I had a couple of pitches that got pretty far down the line when he was hitting, but he hadn't really hit. You mm-hmm. know, like people were talking about Reservoir Dogs. Um, they had already shot True Romance, I think it might have even already opened. And so that, he did not direct that film, he wrote it. That got him like, he was the number one name check, you know, in Hollywood at that time. It was like, everything was like, it's Tarantino-esque, it's Tarantino-esque. And it was, you know, the the script for Pulp Fiction was around, but the film hadn't been made yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, Natural One Killers had obviously already been optioned, as had been from Dust Till Dawn. Mm -hmm. And I had a pitch for something at, um for a producer who was at Nickelodeon and I was like I love they, they'd worked on Roundhouse and I was like I loved Roundhouse that Roundhouse is the greatest thing and I could never understand why somebody didn't do an adult kind of kids in the hall meets Roundhouse mm-hmm. and they're like ooh tell me more little boy you know and it was like and I, I did this whole kind of pitch where I was like look you know the whole thing is that it's got to be you, you've got to have your referen- references in order and part of the pitch was like you know knowing that um you know the, the the films that Tarantino had borrowed from mm-hmm. in in popular conversation at cocktail parties made you the most popular person at the party. That all of a sudden being a film geek and knowing cinema was more valuable than six pack abs. Like at that point in time, <laughs> it was like people were really fascinated by what you knew about cinema. And I had people talking to me about like, hey, what movie, what international films are you watching? And like an idiot, I'd just tell them. And so like, you know, I would see people that I knew and, and say, oh, you know, this is, you know, one of my favorite films that's going to be playing at the at the New Art next week, you know, Wings of Desire, it's this masterpiece. And so people I go with next, you know, gets option for a remake, you know, for mm-hmm. with, with Nicolas Cage, becomes a huge hit in spite of Nicolas Cage. And, um, 
you know, as City of Angels. And and this type of thing was happening pretty regularly to me, you know, in the mid and late 90s where I, I'd just, that'd be the guy that they just ask a question, I'd answer. And other people were getting paid to give these answers to people. And right. I, I never really quite figured it out. But I think it comes back to what we're talking about. It's like love of the game. It's like... Well, you know, you know, and let's stop and just talk about what a great job Tarantino has done with the new Beverly since yeah. taking it over. Yeah. You know, he's, he's the programmer now. He's yeah. running the show. And it's just and it's amazing. Yeah. We talk about what happened with the Cine family, New Beverly and the Egyptian is great, too. But yeah. New Beverly, they were showing uh, a double feature in September of uh, War of the Gargantuas and Frankenstein Conquers I the saw World. That, yeah. you know? I didn't see the film. I saw that it was it was playing. So I. Uh, so Frank, Actually, I have to fix that. I've seen both of those films <laughs> okay. before. I did not see them that on night. Channel Fifty Six, yes, on Creature... channel, probably in that same order on yeah. WLVI Channel Fifty Six, Boston. So uh, uh, Frankenstein conquers the world it has Nick Adams in it, yep. who was uh, you know a contemporary of James Dean, was mm-hmm. desperate to be a star, directed uh, a lot of low budget films, and he he was nominated for an Oscar for Twilight of Honor, mm-hmm. didn't win. And then went kind of went nuts and mm-hmm. ultimately wound up killing himself. Mm-hmm. So before he kills himself, he goes to Japan and he makes three movies. Mm-hmm. He makes Monster Zero, the mm-hmm. sixth Godzilla movie. He makes Frankenstein Conquers the World, mm-hmm. which the new Beverly was showing. And then he makes this movie, The Killing Bottle, which uh, is the fifth movie in the spy series um, that uh, Woody, Woody Allen, Allen did for yes. What's Up Tiger Lily. Yes. So because of the legal rights of that, like it's impossible to see yep. The Killing Bottle and I'm dying to see it. Yeah. So I've, this, this is my holy grail of you know film geek. So I post on the New Beverly um, Facebook group. They create the event for Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas. Mm-hmm. And I say, is there any chance that QT or the New Beverly can find a print of The Killing Bottle? You know, it was the third m- movie that Nick Adams made in Japan, blah, blah, blah. And like 10 minutes later, Tarantino just writes, I wish, Yeah, you know, so that that's where like being a film geek, you're talking <laughs> about like how you're taking advantage of. I just felt like that's where it really paid off. Well, he's somebody, too, that like he's he's very close with various friends of mine and, and different people I know of have worked with him over time. And so we've been in the same room many times. And there was always this kind of weird like he never recognized me even though he'd met me before like dozens of mm-hmm. times and um it was sort of like i didn't want to push it and i'm like i'm i don't feel like i'm so easy to spot necessarily that everybody has to remember me but when you've met somebody like nine or ten times and it's kind of like are they doing this on purpose do you think you could get them on your podcast i doubt <laughs> it i doubt it but i'll say this that um at a golden globe party a couple <laughs> years ago um, we're in the kitchen, my wife and I. God, I. I just feel like we have to apologize to your crowd. I feel like we're name dropping left and right here. Oh, I mean, I, I and yeah, I mean, it, it's. I, like, I'm doing it too. I'm not yeah. like. <laughs> but it's it's it, if you're in Los Angeles and, and you're in industry of any kind, then, then these types of things happen. You know, it's like yeah. I'm not invited every year to the Golden Globes, but um, I was I was happened to be invited this particular year. Yeah. And my wife and I are in the kitchen eating hors d'oeuvres and, and somewhat intimidated actually by the company there. And there was like everybody who was nominated was walking around the Bar Marmont at this Golden mm-hmm. Globe party and while we're in the kitchen i'm like because that's where you'd go to get the food as it comes right out like right mm-hmm. out of the kitchen in the first room um so the the good food we wanted to get the good food and then kind of leave um and and quentin tarantino comes in and he says hi matt and i was wow. like hi and he was like i was like oh i, I, I great to see you <laughs> like, i was just i was so completely did not expect that wow it was just completely mind blowing, and I and I looked over at my wife, and my wife was looking at me, and she was like, "Tarantino just like 
it's totally yeah. said your name and, and said hello to you without yeah, right. any without any yeah. prompting, you know. And I was kind of like, so that did happen. Like yeah. he actually, you he, you did hear him say my name, right? Like it wasn't like a word that sounded like Matt. Yeah. Like hi, what's that? Yeah. You know, or something. And it, it made me so damn happy. And I, like the rest of that night, I was like kind of floating. And it's it's not the type of thing that should mean anything, but because I do love what he did for people like us that love films, it mm-hmm. was very important. And you know, I did drop off tapes of Japanese exploitation films at his place when he lived, you know, over off of, um, Laurel Canyon. And um, and somehow I think Robert Rodriguez, who used to come to um, a video store that I worked at and he used to come in and just kind of shoot the breeze with us sometimes, well. gave us his phone number and asked us to prank call him once. And so we would prank call him occasionally and, um, and just ask like really nerdy, <laughs> you know, like film trivia questions and um do your younger audience members know what prank calling is i mean it <laughs> I seems know, like it's a lost art i know now everything has like call this before caller id this is like around the time <laughs> scream was made yeah. but um you know it, it was it's such I, I love that you know and when when we're watching kill kill bill part one and i was ecstatic at knowing all these references to stuff and when i didn't i was even more ecstatic because i had work to do you know it's like mm-hmm. i had to figure out what this other reference was and talk to the film you know other film geeks like me and we between us all we we got it all it was like oh I can't wait for the second one the second one was you know a little sleepier but um seeing these these great tributes to films that i had i had released on dvd or was releasing at that point and Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, incredible collection of posters that I've been amassing over the years from Japan, these Japanese exploitation films and pinky violence stuff, that it was a type of validation that was just really hard to put a finger on. And yet back then when I was trying to get a quote from him on stuff, he would not give me a quote. He was requesting free merchandise all the time. And they were like, oh, you know, he's asking. I'm like, send him to give him whatever he wants. It's like he should be on the free send out list anyways. You wanted a quote about the store or something? N- no, this is about my, my DVD line when I was releasing the pinky oh. violence films i wanted a quote from terry he wouldn't give me an official quote so i had to pull one from interviews and stuff but um and he but he did request the, the discs and then you know two years later kind of get that acknowledgement was was really important to me and you know um you know I, I, it'd be great to have him on but it's kind of like again it, it'd be like a week-long episode because yeah. the two of us would never shut up it would just be this constant like oh what about this other thing you know and and th- there does get to be at a certain level a kind of like um one-upsmanship among like people who really love rare films but for him it's just kind of like what's he willing to reveal because if he's working on a script that's gonna it's gonna call from something he's gonna want to keep that a secret until it's made and he may or may not acknowledge the elements that are in it and I, I feel that if you've changed them that you don't really have to and then that gives you know film geek something to talk about which there's is there's so too. many weird questions that yeah. he sort like that his work brings up like there's a moment in um death proof yeah where, who's the uh, the director of Hostel? I think he has a part in that. Eli? Eli Roth, uh, yeah. yeah. I think he's like playing one of the guys who's in the bar mm-hmm. with the second group of girls. And, and he's talking to a friend about how they're going to go on a trip. The, the, the girls are going to go on a trip and they want to go with them. They want to hook up with these girls. Mm-hmm. And then, no, no, it's just a girl's trip. And this guy has this, Eli Roth has this strategy of how to become part of the trip. And it's just like, oh, and it's based on drinks. Like, mm-hmm. buy them Jaeger. Like, oh, shot a Jaeger. Shot it, you know, and, it's just, and he's doing it. And it makes no sense, but it sounds so real. Yeah. It sounds like he overheard guys talking about this strategy yeah. to get girls, and he put it in his movie. Yeah. That it's just... It makes no sense. Like, why are these girls going to buy it? But, like, yeah. I completely believe that some guys, 
said this somewhere. I remember reading at some point very early on that that he that he collects conversations that he hears all the time, and I think most good writers do. Yeah. And um, you know where it gets to be. Um, problematic, I guess, is if the other people that are talking are writers. And I don't think, I think he's either smart enough not to have taken from other writers in the room or that when he goes out, he's not hanging with a lot of other writers or they're like, we can't share our material because it's going to wind up in a film. So there's, there's that aspect of things. And I think that there were, there's again, just by virtue of where I've been at certain places, I've seen things that I've said turn up in screenplays and it bums mm-hmm. it used to really bum me out and now mm-hmm. I'm kind of like uh, I, I'm not as bummed out about it I'm more bummed out it's like well you know what I should have written it down I should have done something well, with it let, let's give you credit um, you know you talked about the term Santa Claus DM <laughs> yeah. I did mention that to my friend who was a writer on The Onion Tim and he, Herod and he, did and he put it in The Onion yep, it was a Dungeons yep. and Dragons thing and he used the term Santa Claus DM yep, and yep. I sent it to you and you were happy about yeah, it yeah I thought like, that was hilarious yeah because yeah. it's not something that I would have written you know it was, yeah. it was just like a fun thing and uh, I mean certainly we, we could do this forever I think Mason's gonna he's gonna kill us for, <laughs> for running this, this podcast but before we long. started you're like Tom what are we gonna talk about like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How are we going to fill this up? It was, that was that yeah. was not my concern with how to fill it. But like I say, there's there's so many different aspects, and I'm, I'm just going to touch on a few things, and, and we're probably going to leave. I hope we leave people wanting more if they haven't okay. already completely turned off the podcast yet. But um, you know, one project that you were very passionate about is you've been collecting a a sketchbook, a very okay. large sketchbook of robot drawings by mm-hmm. name artists for your daughter yes and you drew the first one i drew the first one and now and you lost a book well i shouldn't say you lost a book a an artist who you entrusted with, with one a, of the sketchbooks there with, were four sketchbooks in the project yeah this one that's right in front of you now is by far the biggest it's yes. 345 pages but the first book at 77 pages yeah featuring work by a couple people who are deceased and people that are just really impossible to get was lost in a, in by an artist who had it in his care and and um and you've been able to bounce back and and do this this other this other book and now this book is filled and now your daughter gets to draw the last robot yes, in this book the last robot the 345 pages and today we went to the uh, creative talent network in uh, Burbank, mm-hmm. you know, big animation festival, and we got you know the last four pages of the sketchbook filled yeah. up. So now it's her turn. Wow. So after five years of of collecting all these drawings, now this this story is going to work its way into some film where my um, father is dying, and this is the last gift that he gives to his to his daughter. We are going to stress that you are not dying. I hope I'm not dying. Yes, this is. Well, this, here's this, the thing. Like I I was any more so than we all are dying from the day that we are born. But yes, there's there's. Um, you know, artists get the, you know, I explained the project to them. Yeah. And there's there a guy in San Diego Comic-Con. And I said, uh, yeah, here's here's the project. I'm doing it for my daughter. And he's flipping through it. And there's really big names in here. You know, mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro, Mike Mignola, mm-hmm. um, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo is in yeah. here. Yeah. Um, William Joyce. So he's flipping through it in kind of awe. And he's like, is your daughter sick? Like... <laughs> Not is she have a cold or something? Is she like really yeah, sick? Yeah, you know, Like terminally. Like no one would go this far for a healthy child. <laughs> um, but I'm like, what are you talking about? She's perfectly fine. And she's all, she's she's over there reading Saga. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, it's like I, I you guys go every time I see you, I see you at shows and, and the two of you are together. And I yeah. think that's fabulous. And I think it's it's great to be able to kind of share a level of geekdom and fandom with the next generation. And especially as a father daughter thing, because that's rare. Mm-hmm. That that's rare. So um I think it's awesome and I'm I'm glad that you tolerate, you know, the fact that uh your dad is a big geek like me. And um and and that's a really cool thing. That it's it's hard for people to pass on taste mm-hmm. you know like it is a really hard thing to pass on especially when it's it's so niche like this and so this is like i encourage everybody who who's of a mind to be able to do something like this to do this but understand that when you do it in a sketchbook it's real there's there's risks you know stuff can get lost stuff can get stolen i know yeah. people who have had um really specific sketchbooks um, i mean we talked about gaston's um mm-hmm. Creature of the Black Lagoon sketchbook that, that disappeared at a Comic-Con. I had a death sketchbook. It was actually, to my knowledge, the first one. Then there were a few that were making the rounds. Um, mm-hmm. And I had almost everybody who had ever worked on Sandman, and it disappeared. I didn't have it personalized, so any of those sketches could have wound up being pulled out and, and mm-hmm. sold as sketches. I don't even remember them anymore, the ones that were in there. I, I remember a couple of them pretty vividly. But um, And I do still have um, one that was done on a separate piece of paper that I actually have tattooed on my arm. And you were there, I believe, the year that the, the other death tattoo that I have that Chris Pacello did was being saved for me by his wife at the table. And she sold it to someone else. And she else. sold it to someone else who said their name was Matt. Yeah. She's like, are you Matt? And the guy's like, yeah. And his name was not Matt. And he paid it. And when I went over there and, and they were kind of like, oh, well, what can we do? I'm like, well, you can give him his money back and I can pay you for it. Yeah. And he wasn't going to do it. And I threatened to kill him right there on the spot and security came out and had to escort him out so they they didn't escort me out because they were like dude you did a fucked up thing you're lucky we're walking you to the door to this other guy and I've never spotted him again or I'd I'd probably murder him so uh, that's a terrible thing to say and admit to but uh, figuratively I'm not I'm not confessing to murder (laughs) thanks for imparting that lesson to my daughter who's right here absolutely who's who's right here in the room don't let anybody take your drawings Uh, yes but um, again, thanks for coming on. Um, there's a lot that we can't talk about, unfortunately. You've got a mm-hmm. lot of stuff happening. And so I think it's really important that just people remember the name Tom Frank. And you're like, oh, where do we know that guy from? You know him from everything, honestly. <laughs> but um, you can also say, and we listened to a podcast where he talked about Massachusetts and Japan and and uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. And, and we came out on the other side with this beautiful story about this amazing notebook of sketches that he got for his daughter. Neither he nor she... Um, terminally ill so um, <laughs> I, that's probably as, as good a place to stop as any uh, thanks again man for coming on my pleasure and uh, you have an open invitation I'd love to do a round table and, and you know like have like three or four of us and, and have do a four hour podcast I'm kidding I'm kidding <laughs> kidding Mason Mason's, Mason's just like I'm a heart gonna attack. need more batteries but um uh, everybody, again, uh, thanks for listening in. This is uh, the, f- the first show taped back. There's going to be a different um, show that's going to run ahead of this um, in the sequence. But um, very excited to be back, uh, back in front of the microphone and, and doing this show, which I really love to do. And um, we certainly don't get rich doing it, but it is something that is enriching to our souls. And we hope that you enjoy it, too. I encourage you to reach out to me on um, the Pop Sequentialism website, which is info at popsequentialism.com, but to follow us on our social media, which is at podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q, and that's on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm going to be posting more stuff. I think I've said this before. I'm actually a lot more aggressive about it now and getting stuff out there and also tagging old shows and links to the old shows because at this point, Cruising in 100, there's a lot of great material out there that uh, 
people probably haven't heard yet and may be thinking, which one should I listen to first? Um, go through and, and check out the, um, the list of guests. We should describe what the topic will be. Um, I'm going to also be doing a lot more interviews and not just a lot of um, kind of single person monologue stuff, which I've done a lot of in the past, because I just really at this point want to talk to more people that I just want to talk to. And I think that uh, if you like what I've done thus far, that you'll enjoy it as well in the audience. But reach out, contact us. I've gotten some emails, been responding to them, really loving the feedback. And um, I've got a a surprise that we'll talk about, I think, in a couple more episodes about a documentary that uh, relates to a past um, episode. So it grew out of this podcast, actually. So stay tuned. Uh, Keep listening and subscribing. Keep giving us your feedback. And listen to other great shows on the Meltdown Network. This is Matt Kennedy. This has been Pod Sequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.